This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for September 11th, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. The message is by Father Ron Baird. Ten years ago, today, this morning, the world changed for America. Everything that we had come to believe was the way the world worked was suddenly in question. In many ways, I think we lost our innocence that day, and we've not really regained it since. We were attacked in a horrific way. Almost 3,000 people died um, in a, in a um, plane crash into the Twin Towers and in um, the Pentagon and then a plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. But even beyond that, the effects began to echo throughout our economy, one which we've never really recovered from completely. I mean, it's had some ups, but mostly it's never gone back to what it was like before. And even more so, the way that the world was that day permeates throughout the land. It's even gotten to the fact that we live in a constant state of worry and concern and even polarization about what to do about it and how to fight. We end up sometimes fighting each other as a result. Sometimes it's over the economy, sometimes it's over wars. We've been in two major wars and multiple conflicts in that 10 years, and we still don't feel safe. You know, and a specific, um, credible, uncorroborated report, you know, put everybody on alert in the whole country that something might happen. You know, and, and, and this sort of feeling of, oh, no, not again. You know, it's sort of come over us. And we've begun to fear, is this what we are now about? And if you hearken back to that day, I suspect you remember where you were when you found out. Most people do. What I remember about it are two things. One was how clear the sky was, how quiet everything was, because nobody went out. There were no planes in the sky. I think even the birds took the day off. I mean, it was just silent. It was beautiful, but it was eerie because major cities aren't usually silent. And yet we were. And we have come to a point to where we question, what is this all about still today? How could God allow such evil to happen? How could he, he let this happen? Some people said God is punishing America for her sins because we've become a, a selfish and, and, um, and you know, they name their particular sins they like and, and said God's doing this to teach us a lesson. Well, that's almost like saying child abuse should be used to teach a child a lesson. I've never really bought that. Some people said, it. well, it wasn't God who did it. That was people and God didn't have anything to do with that. And I've always thought that somehow or other leaves things out, too, because that sort of says, well, God's out there somewhere, but he doesn't have anything to do with us. I mean, is he involved in our lives or not? You know, or do we have an absent landlord who sort of goes, oh, yeah, I heard about that. Bad. Somewhere, the truth has to be something different than either one of those extremes. And we still are left asking why. 
And I'll tell you why God allows such evil to happen. It seems odd to us. God allows such evil to happen because he loves us. That seems strange, doesn't it? But it's true. You know, God could have made us in such a way that we had no free will. You know, we didn't have the right to choose what to do. You know, he, it, we were imprinted by birth, just like ducks are, and you do exactly what they have to do. You know, when the butterflies um, came out of their, their uh, chrysalis um, a couple of weeks ago, um, they were flapping their wings, and I was asking um, Larry about why they flapped their wings, and he said they do that to dry them off. And I said, isn't it amazing that they know that? You know, the, 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 nobody has to say, oh, by the way, you need to dry off your wings before you try taking off because it's not going to work. I mean, it just happens because they don't really even have a choice whether or not they do it. I mean, it just comes natural to them. But God loved us so much that he wanted us to be able to choose to love him. He didn't want to control every aspect of our lives. And in particular, he did not want to control how we felt and in particular about him. He wanted to be in a relationship with us, and that relationship couldn't be one-sided. And as a result, because we can choose to love him, we can also choose not to love him. We can choose to go our own way and do our own thing. And sometimes those things end up with horrible consequences for us. Well, so what do we do with that? because that really is the world we live in. I think part of the problem is, is that we had come to believe that America was a safe place. It's much like the reason why we move out to the outer suburbs. Y'all do realize if this keeps happening, our great-grandchildren will live outside of, of Cleveland somewhere, which will be bad because all those people will be moving this way. We're all going to run into each other. We just keep thinking that we can move to fix the problem. And in America... And perhaps because it's the way America was founded, they, they left places to escape persecution in many cases. That somehow or other we were isolated from that and that the world wasn't like that. The world was a good place. But the world's not a good place. The world's never been a good place since the fall. The world has been filled with pain and destruction and evil and people who are selfish and do what they want to do regardless of who it hurts or what it costs. And as a result, because we were so mighty, you know, after World War II, we became the mightiest country in the world. Who dared touch us? And even so, you know, with our economy, our economy was so powerful. We were the engine that drove the world economy. You know, there's a saying in Europe says, if, if America sneezes, Europe catches a cold. So, we are impenetrable. And we began to believe that we had created this tower of Babel in which we could climb the heights because we were special. And we escaped all of what the world really was like. And then suddenly, the world came crashing in on us. Now, it's not really an unusual thing, I have to tell you. If you're a student of history, you know this has happened before. The exact same thing happened to Rome. Rome had conquered the known world at the time. They were an engine of efficiency, of economy, of, of, of might. No one dared to oppose them. 
you know, wherever they went, they would just sort of crush everybody in their path. Now, they may have done it more brutally than we would today, 2,000 years later, but overall, they saw it as a good thing. They would bring what they called the Pax Romana, that's P-A-X, not P-O-X, um, to the world, the peace of Rome. They believed that they were actually pacifying the known world. And, and in fact, when they went to places, the economies boomed. You know, now what we think of as the great ruins in Israel were all built during the Roman period. I mean, you know, life got better. You know, and no one dared to question them. And then came the barbarians. And ultimately, it forced them out of Rome to Constantinople, and ultimately Rome fell and the Dark Ages fell upon the Western world. Now, why did it happen then? Well, I suspect it happened then for similar reasons why it happened now. The reason why Rome became so mighty and so great was because they believed in certain principles of duty and honor and integrity. Those were at the core of what it meant to be Roman. And as long as they held to that core, they grew and became mighty. After a while, they began to think that they deserved it. Not that they were obligated to accomplish it, and they started saying, because we're rich and powerful, we can do things we want. And they were led by their leaders, by the way. I mean, the Roman emperors had sort of one debacle and debauchery after another. And ultimately, the people said, well, I don't want to go fight on the frontiers and do all this stuff in the army. You know, that's ridiculous. Why should we have to fight? We're Rome. And so then they had to start hiring mercenaries to come in. And everything was fine until some guy named Genghis Khan came along and knocked on the door. And it opened the floodgates for many, many peoples who invaded, pillaged, took what they want. And the strangest and saddest part of it all was that many of them were the very mercenaries that Rome had hired because they didn't want to do it. Because what they now believed in was my right as a Roman citizen to a good life. And living in hardship out on the frontier was not a good life. Sacrifice was not a good life. You know, giving away the duty and honor and integrity may be great for our ancestors, but we've already arrived. We have accomplished this. And then they fell. Not in one stroke, but over several hundred years, it just came to nothing. And... The Dark Ages lasted far longer than the Roman Empire did. Because that's what happens when we begin to abandon who we are. Now, our country was founded on certain principles, too. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Who? Their creator. We had a fundamental belief that it was God to whom we owed everything. And they didn't really want to get into how you define God and argue about that. But there was a fundamental belief that without what they frequently called providence on your side, you would fail and you would die. It was the only way this republic could possibly make it. And you see it throughout the writings of the early, um, the early um, patriots of the time. They were constantly calling upon God to lead them, to show them the way, to tell them the right thing to do. 
so that they could do that. And for many, many years, that was the way that we tended to think because we knew that we couldn't rely on ourselves. I mean, disease would come along. There was the dust bowl that caused famine. I mean, they didn't have penicillin. You know, when wars came, you know, thousands and thousands of people died. It really wasn't until after World War II that we established this country of prosperity and power that if you're in my generation, you've come to know as normal. Yeah, the Pax Americana. Except that what we've realized now is that It's not safe either. So what's the solution? I mean, what do you do then? Is it just that we're bound and destined in a world that is, you know, it's up to chance? I mean, it depends on whether or not the barbarians are at the gate. If you happen to live in a time when the barbarians are at the gate, good for you. If not, well, you're on your own. Too bad. Well, that doesn't sound much like a God that really cares about his people, does it? To find the answer, we really have to look at today's gospel lesson. You all knew I was going to get to that, didn't you? Um, Today's gospel lesson is an interesting one. Peter goes up to Jesus and he says to him, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? Now, do you all remember what's been going on? I mean, Peter didn't just get up one morning and think, I'm going to ask him this question. I've always wondered about, do you have to forgive people seven times? I mean, it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. You remember what happened last week? In the lesson, in the gospel lesson? Hmm? Nope, that was two weeks. But it's part of the story. Let's go back two weeks. Anybody remember that story? Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Gives him the name Peter, the rock upon which he's going to build his church. Then, you know, Peter says, God forbid it, Lord, I don't want that to happen to you. And they leave. And they're going Where? Right. Now, why would they be arguing on the road? Right, but I mean, what, why are they arguing about who's the greatest? Hmm? Yeah, but primarily because Peter just got named it. And they're thinking, they picked the worst candidate for office I've ever heard of in my entire life. What kind of idiot would pick him? I mean, he's stupid. This guy puts on his clothes to get out of a boat for crying out loud. I mean, he's not the brightest bulb in the socket. And so they're all arguing about, I could do a better job than he could. Now, if you take that, why would Peter say, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother who sins against me? Now that Jesus has called them on it, he's going, they're always talking about me. They're always running me down. They're always criticized. I'm sick of this. Why do you think he picked the number seven? Hmm? The divine number, yeah, that, it is the divine number, but that's not why. How many times do you think he'd been, he could count that he had actually been offended? My guess is it was six <laughs> that he actually remembered at the moment. Because if Jesus said, now, nope, yeah, seven times you have to forgive him. Or let's say it had already been seven and this was the eighth time. Now, that did it. I'm going after them. I don't have to forgive them anymore. I'm done. I've paid my dues. They're going to get it now, big time. Well, Jesus answers the questions. And you can almost see him laugh when Peter says, seven times? He goes, Peter, I tell you, it's not seven times. It's 70 times seven times. Now, why would he say 70 times seven times? Can you count 
having forgiven somebody that many times? You'd almost have to keep track of it, wouldn't you, to mark it on the list? <laughs> I forget. And then you probably forget some of them. I mean, that's a lot of times. What he's saying is that, look, the amount you have to forgive people is well beyond your capacity to keep up with. What you really need to do is just keep forgiving them on and on. And to illustrate this, he tells us a story. And the story has to do with a man who has um, become an indentured servant to a king because of great debt that he owed the king. Apparently, the king must have invested in some business or something. This guy doesn't it failed, and he didn't have the money to pay him. Finally, the king wants his money. You know, I'm not getting enough work out of this guy to ever make up back what I, the 10,000 talents that this guy owes me. So he calls me, I want my money. Oh, Lord, please, please, I don't have the money. I mean, you know, give me time, I'll, I'll pay you, I promise, I promise. And the king actually forgives him the entire debt. Says, you know, you're not going to get that much money. <laughs> this is not going to happen. So I'll tell you what, forget it. You don't, know, you don't owe it to me more. You just stay in service to me and, and we'll leave it at that. So the guy leaves and upon leaving, he's walking down the hallway and he sees this guy who owes him a hundred denarii. Now that's basically a hundred days pay. And he grabs him by the throat, you pay me now. Now, I always thought it was interesting that he had loaned this guy 100 denarii when he owed this other guy all this money. Seems like a dumb idea to me, but he'd done it anyway. And the guy does say, saying, please, please have mercy on me. I'll pay you. I promise I'll pay you. But he isn't going for that. He has him thrown in prison. Now, the reason why he had him thrown in prison, back in those days, they had what was called debtor's prison. If you owed somebody money, you stayed in prison till either A, you came up with the money, or B, your friends and family liked you enough to come up with the money. And if they didn't, you never got out. You died in there. And so he had him thrown in prison. He didn't care what happened to him. And the other slaves in the, in the, in the king's service saw what was going on. They knew what he, the king had just done, and they go to the king. They're furious. And the king calls him before him. And he says, you wicked slave, I just get, forgave you 10,000 talents. Now, that's like 10,000,000 of what the other guy owed him. And I just wiped it off, wiped the book clean. And then you go out for 100 denarii and have this guy thrown in prison? And he says, take him away and have him tortured until he pays me every penny. Now, he isn't just throwing him in prison. He's having him tortured. But then Jesus does the punchline. I tell you that unless you forgive your brother or sister, your Father in heaven is going to do exactly the same thing to you. Now, we don't feel very comfortable with that, do we? Because we begin to wonder, how do you even apply that in the world in which we live? I mean... It's hard enough to apply on a regular basis when somebody just insults you. But how do you apply it in a world in which terrorists kill you? How do you manage to, to forgive that? Well, part of it comes with the fact that we totally distorted what forgiveness means. We seem to think that forgiveness means that I am supposed to be a doormat and let you do it to me over and over again. That's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness means that you let go of the right of revenge, of vengeance, of justice, of all of those kinds of concepts. And you don't let go of it because they're such good people and you feel sorry for them. You let go of it because none of it belonged to you to begin with. Who does it belong to? God. 
our ability to forgive has a fundamental you know, distinction that, that says what our relationship with God is really like. Do we believe that God will bring justice? Do we believe that vengeance is his? Or do we believe that we've got to do it? Now, I'm not saying that that means if people attack you, you're just supposed to go, oh, well, that, that's really too bad. God, can you help? You know, and if he does, he does. And if he doesn't, he doesn't. That's going back to the doormat status. No, I mean, if you have a rabid dog running through your neighborhood, what do you want the dog warden to do? Yeah, then put him down, right? You don't want the dog running around. Now, does the dog warden have to have a personal, vengeful, you know, emotional response? I'm going to get that dog. He deserves every moment of what he gets. Or do you have to have it to want him put down? You just want people to be safe. You don't have to have a lot of emotion tied up to it. You just want him to be safe. You want him to be gone. Well, the world's a lot like that, too. Sometimes it is necessary for us to do things in the world, even wars. But it is never a good thing. It may be a necessary thing, but it should never be enacted because of vengeance or the righteousness. Even in our Star-Spangled Banner, in one of the verses we never sing, is, is a line that talks about this. It says, and conquer we must when our cause, it is just, in this be our motto, in God is our trust. That's significant that it says that. It doesn't say when our cause, it is just, but which, by the way, we get to decide because we're very smart. It says when our cause, it is just because we trust in God, because this is what God requires of us. That is what he expects. But the vengeance doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And there's a very good reason why God does not allow us to have vengeance on our side or even justice for that matter. The reason that God doesn't allow it is that we don't have the right to execute it. I mean, does it make any sense that we who, who you know, do things wrong all the time somehow or other get to decide that what somebody else does wrong should be punished? I mean, and yet the world often operates that way, all because we don't trust God, all because we don't believe that God will make a difference and make a decision. Every Sunday, we say the Lord's Prayer. You may say it in your daily prayers. One of the things we say is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I really, we need a more modern translation or at least the ability to think of it that way because the real way to say this, Lord, forgive me my sins in exactly the same way that I forgive other people's sins against me. Do you ever think about that's what you're saying? So if we can't let go of it and allow God to decide, then what we're saying to God is, don't you let go of mine either. And we, we justify it in our own mind. We say, well, yeah, I mean, is anybody here perfect? Because if you are, it wouldn't apply to you. But if you're perfect, I need for you to explain to all of us how you do it. So, <laughs> I mean, all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us sin. And so what we end up doing is saying, well, yeah, I flunked the test, but I got a 50, and that idiot over there only got a 25. He should really get it. Well, what difference does it make? You both flunked the test. 
I mean, neither one of you got there. I mean, do you think that, the, that a student in school who got a 50 on a test should be able to sit in the judgment of the students who got your worse grades than they did? That makes no sense, does it? And yet we live out our lives doing exactly that. And we do it not only in world affairs with people like Osama bin Laden, we do it daily with one another. I mean, I can't tell you how many fights I've heard with well, he did this. Well, yeah, but you started, you did this. Well, yeah, but I did that because you did this. I mean, it's like, oh, good, you're both corrupt. I mean, congratulations. We have whole political elections based on this concept. You know, who do you want to elect? Which one's the, the worst? You know, because elect the other one. And all of it stems from the same thing that happened to Rome, which is that we have departed from that essential center of what it means to be American that we only exist because of the favor of God. We forgot in the 50s and 60s that we only were wealthy because of the gifts and abilities that God gave to us. We forgot that we were only powerful because of what God had enabled us to accomplish. And we began to think that we did it ourselves and that we could sustain it forever. So, is it bad to lose your innocence? Well, it hurts. But would you rather live out life in disillusion? I mean, in, in illusion, thinking that, oh, everything's fine, when it's really not? Because the world is hard, and the world is scary. And if we want to be able to survive in a world that is that hard and that scary, we will never be able to rely on ourselves. We can only rely on an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-creating God who will bring everything to its fullness. And while we may have to take action from time to time, we will never do it with relish. We will only do it with sadness because it's necessary. And that goes for wars. It goes for personal relationships that can't be reconciled. Because you see, that's the big difference is we've come to believe that forgiveness means that I have to say it doesn't matter what you did to me. Well, it does matter. That's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness means you have to let go of the feeling and the anger and the right to get even. That's what it means, give forth. Well, you're not giving it to them. That would be dumb. You give it to God. To restore a relationship requires, first of all, reconciliation. And reconciliation, you can't do by yourself. It takes both people. I mean, I suppose you could have a one-sided relationship, but they don't usually work too well. I mean, it takes both people trying to work at restoring the relationship to be able to do that. Not just one. And so it becomes important that we first forgive, and, and forgiveness means, yes, if the Lord calls us, we're open to reconciliation. And if the other person's willing, I'm willing to engage in trying to do that. And if you're able to reconcile, it involves sometimes even restoring the relationship to what it is. But it all starts with our willingness to realize that I'm not God. God is God. And I need to let go and let him. And there's a very good reason for doing this. Because as Paul says in his epistle today at the very end, he says, at the end of time all of us will be held accountable for what we have done. Every one of us is going to be standing before the judgment throne. 
And somehow or other, I don't think it's going to work real well if we say to Jesus, when, he, when all the list of things that you've done that you wish your mother didn't know, but now she does, goes forward, that, that you can say, well, yeah, but look at him over there. He was an axe murderer. I think Jesus is going to say, we're not talking about him right now. We're talking about you. I mean, that's just not going to fly. And we live out our lives in sort of a perpetual state of a toddler tantrum. I remember, it might have been, four year, been with a four-year, five-year-old in a grocery line at the checkout counter. What happens? Hmm? No, they need to do that before they get to the checkout line. I want candy! <laughs> when I was that age, I, and I know this well because I remember it, it's weird, I have this sort of subliminal thing. that If I go in a grocery line, I always look at the candy rack. And I don't even eat candy much, but I always look at it, you know, because obviously they put it there because they wanted me to have it, right? Well, when I was four or five, I was convinced that this was true. And my poor mother, God rest her soul, would have to listen to this wailing and screaming, and I'm going to die if I don't get a candy bar. And I mean, oh, oh, life is terrible. You're never going to give me a candy bar again for the rest of my life. You know, I might as well lay here and just roll over and be dead. I mean, it was awful. And I really believed it. I mean, here's this selfish, self-centered woman with all this money and power who won't even share a measly candy bar with a little kid. How could she do such a thing? Isn't that how we treat God? I didn't bother to stop and think about the fact, gee, maybe they weren't able to buy all the groceries that we really needed this week because they didn't have enough money. You know, my dad would work throughout the year, and he would come to uh, school, and he would have to go borrow money to buy school clothes for us because we didn't have any. I always looked forward to school because that was when I could quit wearing tennis shoes that my toes stuck out of um, because that's the way it always was. You didn't get an extra pair in the summer in those days. And what I didn't know until I got much older, certainly didn't know it for, was the following summer he would go on vacation and he would paint houses to make enough money to pay off the loan that he had taken out the previous September so that we could go to school. And then it would go around and he'd do it all over again. He finally got to quit doing that when I left. He got to do a lot of things when I left. Actually, they got carpeting and air conditioning and color TV. And I said to him in my usual selfless way, how come you're getting all this stuff now that I'm gone? He looked at me and said, because I can afford it now that you're gone. <laughs> Never bothered to occur to me. And much less that having a candy bar right before dinner might not be the best idea if I wanted to be able to eat dinner. All that was irrelevant to me. And all too often, that's what we look at the world as being like. I want mine. I want to get what I want. I want that candy bar. They wouldn't have put it there if it wasn't meant for me. Except now we've got, I want that SUV because they wouldn't have put it there if it wasn't for me. I, I want that nice house because they wouldn't have put it there if it weren't for me. You know, I, I want that new iPad because they wouldn't have made it if it weren't for me. And it all revolves around me. And then when other people wrong me, how tempting it is to say, how dare they? How dare they treat me that way? Who do these people think they are? Well, unfortunately, all too often they're like me. 
It's just they got a 25 instead of a 50. At least I like to tell myself that. Don't we all? If we really want to live in a world where we can feel safe and secure, you're never going to find it by the stock market rising or, you know, terrorism stopping or, you know, natural disasters ceasing or any of those things. Because I can tell you right now, it won't happen. It just changes what events happen. If you really want to feel safe and secure in the world, there's only one place to go, and that's to the one who made you. Because the truth is, is that if he made you, he can raise you. And he can remake the world. But to do that, you have to be willing to let go. That's the hardest thing for an American to do. Rugged individualism, we're so proud of it. You know, you can't really blame us. We sort of founded our country based on people fled persecution to get here. But the truth is, at least even though they were fleeing, they didn't forget what they were fleeing for, because most of the people who were fleeing persecution did not flee it because somehow or other they thought, this way we can be a powerful nation and make lots of money. They fled because they wanted to have this relationship with God. If we don't want to go the way of the Roman Empire, that's our choice, is to go back to what we were founded upon, to go back to those core principles of who we are, to believe that God is provident and it will supply us with all of our needs. And that, yes, we will conquer if we must, but our, if our cause is just, but this be our motto. And God is our trust. It's when we begin to live again, believing that we can trust in a heavenly Father who will bring us to completion, that peace and security can finally rest on this land again. Because it didn't during the Great Depression... It didn't during the panic of the 1890s. It didn't during the Civil War. It certainly didn't during the War of 1812 or, or the Revolutionary War before that. It didn't if you were a, a frontier person on a Conestoga wagon going out with all these Indians around you. You didn't believe somehow or other, I can make it. It's by the grace of God that any of us are here. And it'll only be by the grace of God that any of us survive. And when we know that, when we trust him, then we know that we can be at peace and be secure. But it all starts with that basic thing. How many times do I have to forgive my ex-wife, my brother-in-law, my ex-best friend? How many times do I have to forgive that person? Just keep doing it. Because your soul depends upon your ability to let go of your control and give it to an almighty God. Amen. You were just listening to Come and See. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Anglican Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrew's is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to Come and See.